Second Book of Kings, chapter six. Second Kings, chapter six. We'll read from verse eight to the end of verse twenty-three. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants unto and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. It came to pass when they were come into Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? 
And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Well, we can turn again, please, now to Second Kings chapter 6, the part of God's Word we read. Second Kings chapter 6. We want to look at this whole section that we read from verse 8 through 23. But we can read again these remarkable words in verse 15 and 16. 2 Kings 6, verse 15, when the, man, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. So there are many wonderful things about the the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha. There's the fact that he does so many miracles, many of the many of these remarkable miracles that he does, more than or, or double the number of miracles that Elijah had done before him. And, and when you look at his miracles and you look at his ministry, you you see how Elisha moves from, from events that sometimes seem, at least from our perspective, very big to others that seem relatively small. And he does that with people too. Sometimes he's with a very important person, a king or a general like the chapter before this with Naaman the Syrian. Other times he's with you know, a, a widow in chapter uh, 4, or, or maybe it was chapter 3, but he's with a widow who nobody knows, and this poor, this poor lady. And in, in all of this, of course, he's, he is showing us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elisha is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. And this is, he is serving the God who cares as much for the unknown widow as he does for a general or a king or an army, as you have in chapter 3, three armies in the desert. Another thing that you might notice about Elisha as you read through his ministry, and it's a very beautiful feature of Elisha, is that most of the time, at least, he has this calmness and this composure you hear more from his predecessor, Elijah, of his personal angst and the way in which he feels. But 
But there is a composure and a calmness to, to Elisha, maybe with the one exception of uh, chapter uh, 3 when he calls for the minstrel, remember, because he's so upset at seeing King Jehoram in front of him. Call, bring me the minstrel, he says, and it's almost as though he needs to be settled down. But apart from that, you see a calmness and you see a composure, and with that, you see a consistency. So it doesn't matter whether he's in the king's palace or whether he's in the widow's home, there is a consistency. And again, there is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God who can say, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And in the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, here is the glorious truth of the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the same to you as He was to any sinner who ever went to Him in the days of His flesh. He is the same. Well, here in this passage uh, with Elisha, you would think that this composure of Elisha is about to be severely tested. The king of Syria has sent an army a large army with chariots, with horses, to capture this old prophet. And in many ways, you think, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Why send a whole army to capture one old prophet? But it's not just, and you know that children too, it's not just any old prophet. This is a prophet of the Lord. This is a prophet of Jehovah. This is a prophet of the Lord of hosts. And maybe you remember the Psalm, Psalm 125, that says, Just like the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from this time forth and forever. So we're going to take that as our theme here the Lord of hosts upon our side. We want to see these three things. Firstly, defending a rebellious king. Secondly, delivering his faithful servant. And thirdly, displaying his amazing grace. But firstly then here, the Lord of hosts upon our side, defending a rebellious king. Now we, we want to just step back here for a moment and, think, and consider the context. And uh, think of, well, why is this Syrian army chasing down you know, the old prophet, Elisha. Why, why are they chasing Elisha? You, you see in verse 8, it says, Then, then warred the king of Syria against Israel. So here, here are the Syrians, and they're, they're coming, and they're fighting again. You, you read about the Syrians in these chapters all the time. They're coming, and they're fighting, and here they are again. They're, they're fighting again. But that word, then seems to point us back to the chapter before this, at least. And you, you know, children, this chapter 5 very well. It's the story of Naaman. Naaman, the great Syrian, the, the, the man that everybody wanted to be, until he had leprosy. And then he, he's over there in Syria, and he hears this little girl, a little maid girl from 
all the way from Samaria or Israel. She had come there. She had been captured and taken away from her home. And she was working in this home. And she, she knows that her master, Naaman, has leprosy. And she said, you know, Naaman's in the wrong place. If only Naaman was in, in Samaria, there's a prophet of the Lord who could heal him. And so he hears that and he goes to his king and the king sends him off and he gets the gold, he gets the silver, he gets the horses, he brings the big wardrobe with the clothes. He goes all the way to the king, king, the king of Israel. And then he eventually goes all the way to Elisha. He goes into the Jordan seven times and his leprosy is gone. His flesh, his skin becomes just like the skin of a little child. The leprosy is gone. It is an amazing thing, an amazing miracle that happened to Naaman. And can you imagine how the king of Syria would have, what he would have thought when he saw Naaman come back? I wonder when he sees him in the distance, I wonder what are they going to look out for? They're going to look out and see if he has leprosy. I wonder if he's healed. And then he sees him and he sees his skin with no leprosy on it. But there's something else about Naaman that the king of Syria sees. It's not just a change of skin and, and uh, his face. There's a change of heart. There's a change in the, the flesh of the heart. And Naaman is no longer worshipping the god of Syria. Remember he said that to Elisha, I will no longer worship in the house of Rimen. Naaman is a changed man, not just physically, but spiritually. And you would think, wouldn't you, that this would have softened the king of Syria's heart? What kind of a god is this in Samaria who can heal a man of leprosy? And Naaman coming and saying, oh king, I know that there is no god in all the earth, but the god of Israel. You would think, wouldn't you, that the king of Syria would repent, that he would stop worshipping the god of, uh, of Rimmon, and that he would worship the Lord Jehovah. But no, that's not his response. We read here, then warred the king of Syria against Israel. Now that, that should not surprise us. Because like Paul says in Romans 8 verse 7, the carnal mind, that is the mind of a person who doesn't know God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Now notice that Paul doesn't say the carnal mind is an enemy of God. No, he said the carnal mind is enmity itself. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. What a picture of the human heart. It can see God working miracles. It can see God healing a leper. It can see a sinner saved, a sinner turned around, raised to life from, from death. Yes, it can find the grave of Jesus empty, the greatest of all miracles. And what is the response of the natural man? Do they repent? Do they turn to God? No, they war against God because the carnal mind is enmity against God. What a picture of the human heart. Well, here's this king of Syria then, and he's, 
he's scheming and he's plotting. He says, okay, we're going to go. We're going to capture the king of Israel. We're going to find him. We're going to capture him. Now, children, this king of Israel, perhaps you remember who he is. This is the king that Naaman went to before he went to Elisha. Remember, he goes to the king. It's King Jehoram. And he goes in King Jehoram in the chapter before this, when, when Naaman comes and says, I hear there's a prophet who can heal of leprosy. The king rips his clothes and says, who can, hear of, who can heal of leprosy? There's nobody here who can heal of leprosy. That, kind of, that shows you what King Jehoram was like. He's not a good king. He's a bad king. Now that King Jehoram, if you read the chapter, chapter 3, he should have known. He had seen Elisha work a miracle in the desert when his army was about to die of thirst and be swallowed up by the, and be killed by the enemies, and suddenly the whole th- place was full of water. He had seen Elisha's power, or the God of Elisha's power. And yet this is this king Jehoram. He's, he's a wicked king. He's an unbelieving king. He's a king who does this. He says, you know, I, I know I'm meant to worship the Lord, but I really want to worship Baal as well. So here's the solution, he says, let's do both. And he brings the worship of Baal and he brings the worship of Jehovah and he says, let's do both. That's the kind of king this is. He's not a good man. He's an unbelieving king. He's the king that stirred the the normally calm Elisha and made him agitated in chapter 3. So, when you look at this king, don't you think this is not the kind of person who deserves any help? And yet, do you see the blessing that comes to this rebellious king? And not just to the king, but to the whole land of Israel, because Elisha, the man of God, is here and he is speaking. We could say because the word of God is in this place. And we we should notice, and this is just a fact of history, that whenever the gospel comes to any land, that land has received blessing. That is true certainly of this great nation. It's true of the nations of the West, the nations of Europe. It's true in places like South Korea today. Righteousness exalts a nation. The gospel makes people, even at the horizontal level, honest, hardworking. And even when the leaders themselves are not true Christians, there is still a blessing in the land when there is respect for the law of God, both tables of it. So when the gospel is in a nation, when the church is there as the pillar and ground of the truth, and when it speaks... There is safety. And when the state listens to the church and listens to the Word of God, then there is this blessing, as we see here, a blessing of defense. So let's see what happens next. The king of Syria, he's, he's at war with Israel, and he's, he's plotting, he's scheming. Now, history tells us this king of Syria was a man called Ben-Hadad. This is Ben-Hadad. And he was known to be very clever. He was very good at war. He could 
capture people and ambush people and trick people. He had lots of clever people who helped him. And so here he makes a clever plan. Well, actually, he makes several clever plans to capture the king of Israel. Look at verse 8 again. It says there, he took counsel with his servants. And he says, in such and such a place shall be my camp. So what he's saying here is, my scouts have told me that the king of Israel, the man we want to capture, he's going to be over here. So let's set an ambush. Let's put our, you know, an ambush here and we'll capture the king of Israel. But the thing is, the king of Israel doesn't go there. And so he thinks, well, that's strange. My scouts told me he was going there. And then he tries again. He does the same thing again. And he's, well, he's going to be here. And so they put an ambush here. But the same thing happens again. Not once, not twice. In other words, many, many times. And eventually the king of Syria gets very frustrated and very upset. And he says, something's wrong. Somebody from my army must be telling the king of Israel my plans. How else does he keep escaping my ambushes? You know, it's basically what he says in verse 11. He gets a servant and he says, find out who's telling the king of Israel my plan. Now, the, the text doesn't say, but it is possible that this servant is Naaman, or at least someone that Naaman has spoken to. And that's, that's at least suggested to us because it's certainly someone who knows about Elisha. It's someone who knows this much, verse 12, that there is a prophet of the Lord who knows what you're saying in your bedchamber. Isn't that remarkable? One of his servants said, none of us here, my Lord. There's no mole in this camp. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. That's astonishing, isn't it? This prophet is a prophet whose God can heal of leprosy. But this prophet is also a prophet whose God knows and is able to tell his prophet what you're saying hundreds if not thousands of miles away in your bedroom or your bedchamber in your secret council. And you would think, wouldn't you, that this man would stop at this point and say, well, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea going after this prophet and this God and that he would at least reflect, if not repent, but no, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Well, this servant of the king of Syria, whoever it is, is right. This is exactly what Elisha had been doing. Look at the middle of verse 9. He tells the king of Israel, be careful, beware, that thou pass not such a place, for there the Syrians are come down. Now, there's a great spiritual lesson here, isn't there? Isn't this what the Word of God says to you and says to me every Lord's day and indeed every day as we read it and week by week as we read it, as we listen to it in the preaching of law and gospel? Isn't this what the Bible is telling us? Sin, temptation, Satan, 
They are at war with you. They're trying to capture you. They, they are very clever. They, they are very subtle. They're laying traps for you. And doesn't the Word of God come and say, beware, be careful, beware that you don't go to this place or that place because there is the enemy of your soul. This kind of music, these kinds of parties, this kind of clothing, these kinds of websites, be careful, don't, don't go there. This is dangerous. And even what we might think in our minds, that the danger of unbelief, the danger of not believing the gospel and the Word of God comes and says, beware of this. Don't, don't think these thoughts about God and about the gospel. This is the enemy of your soul. Well, back to here, verse 13. And the, the king of Syria, when he hears this, well, he changes his plan. He basically says, well, forget about the king of Israel. Then let's go and get the prophet Elisha, go, he says, and spy where he is. Now, notice again the irrationality of unbelief. You know, here's a prophet who knows what you're saying in your bedchamber. And he says, go and spy where he is. There, there, there is an irrationality to, to unbelief. But anyhow, the spies find out that Elisha is lodging in a place called Dothan. And so they go after him there. Go spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And just as an aside, Satan often targets uh, Christian leaders, um, pastors, elders, deacons, fathers in the home, anyone who is speaking the word of God. Now here, here, Elisha is speaking the word of God, and basically what the king of Syria is, says is, stop him. Stop him speaking the word of God. And you can be sure that if you in your work, in your family, in your home, are speaking, reading the word of God and speaking it into the lives of others, that Satan will have a mark on you and will try to shut it down. That's why we need to pray for uh, Christian leaders, for pastors, elders. That's why Christ said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. All right, let's move on now to see the Lord of hosts delivering his faithful servant. Delivering his faithful servant. So here in verse 14 now, the Syrian army comes at night. Now, there's almost something humorous here. It's as though the king of Syria is saying, okay, well, Elisha and Elisha's God, they, they know what we're saying in the daytime. They know how we function in the, in the daytime. Let's surprise them at night. Let, let's give them a night attack when they can't see us coming. Now, if you think back to Elijah on Mount Carmel, remember what he says about Baal. And, and this indeed was true of the, the gods of the nations. This is the kinds of thing that were, you know, that, that, that they thought. And, and Elisha, he, he mocks the prophets of Baal, and he said, this is 1 Kings 18, verse 27, cry aloud, for he is a god, isn't he? Either he's talking to someone, or he's away on a journey, he's pursuing someone, or perhaps... He's sleeping, and you must wake him up. 
And, and it's as though the king of Syria is thinking, maybe we can catch the prophet Elisha when his God is asleep at night. But that's not what this God is like, is it? You're learning, you're memorizing as a congregation, Psalm 121. And what does verse 4 say? Behold, he that keepeth Israel, he slumbereth not, nor sleeps. And don't we sing in Psalm 139 about this God? If deepest darkness cover me, the darkness hideth not from thee. To thee, both night and day are bright. The darkness shineth as the light. So anyhow, here we hear this, this large number of horses and chariots. They all come and they camp around this little small village of Dothan and Elisha and the city are all sound asleep. Verse 15, the servant of Elisha, perhaps a a recent graduate from the seminary who had replaced Gehazi, who has leprosy from the chapter before. He gets this young man, he gets up early in the morning and he goes out to do his work and suddenly, verse 15, behold, oh my, what a sight he sees. Behold, a host, that's an army, a huge army, compass or circle around the city with horses and chariots. This must have been a terrifying sight. He's never seen anything like this before. As far as he can see, in every direction, this way, that way, forward, back, in every direction, he sees horses and chariots and swords and spears and the flags of the Syrian enemy army. It is a terrifying sight that he sees. They're in this little defenseless city, and there's this huge enemy army suddenly all around. There's no way of escape. They're cornered in. And so he runs to Elisha in verse 15 in a, in a panic, and he cries, Master, Master, alas, Master, how will we do? What are we going to do now? And then in verse 16, Elisha replies with all the calm and the composure that we spoke about earlier. Fear not. Fear not. You know, have you seen what's outside? Fear not not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then, don't you love this prayer in verse 17, the prayer of Elisha? Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, this young seminarian, open his eyes so that he would see Can you imagine the look on the servant's face as he listens to Elisha praying this prayer? Lord, open his eyes. That's the prayer the seminarian had for old prophet Elisha. It's Elisha who's not seeing. Don't you see what's outside? Don't you see the army? Don't you see the flags? Don't you see the chariots? Don't you hear them now? How can anyone look at this situation and conclude that we have the bigger numbers? Now, that, by the way, is something we, we often can think when we're younger. We can look at an older Christian and think, you know, this older Christian, they're not seeing things properly. You know, if they just saw things as I saw them, they, they would see the reality. And, of course, young people can teach 
older Christians, and older Christians can learn from younger Christians, certainly. But nevertheless, that there is a there is something that we've we've all had with this sort of sense that um, other people aren't seeing things properly. But here, Elisha, with beautiful composure and beautiful grace, simply says, "Lord, open his eyes, open his eyes, so that he would see." In verse 17, the Lord answers the prayer. He opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full. Not not, not the army down here, but the mountain around them. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The prophet sees, and the seminarian, the young man sees, there is another army here. I didn't see it before. I see it now. There's another army here with thousands upon thousands. We sang that, didn't we? God's chariots, thousands upon thousands. Chariots of fire all around the prophet Elisha. Who had the problem with sight again? Before we pick on this young man, this is the way we so often are ourselves. You know, whenever... Whenever a temptation or a situation, uh, whatever form it comes, when the the enemy of our soul comes and it's more real to us than God, and the circumstances are more real to us than God's promises are real to us, then spiritually we're in trouble and spiritually we're not seeing properly. When the circumstance seems out of control, when the addiction seems overpowering, when the temptation triumphantly proclaims, there's no way out, I have you cornered. When unbelief comes and says, "My, there's no hope for a sinner like me, my corruption is too strong, you're not seeing properly. And you need this prayer, Lord, open my eyes that I would see. Is there no promise of God for you here? Is there no word of God to help you in this trial and this temptation? Elisha's not ignoring the reality of the Syrian army. He sees that too. But just as clearly and more clearly than he sees the Syrian army, Elisha sees God. His God, His army, His promises. You sometimes wonder, how, how did Elisha go down to sleep that night? Which psalm did he sing? You know, Elisha sang the same psalms that we sing. The psalms of David. Which one did he sing? Did he sing Psalm 3? I laid me down and slept. I awaked because, because God sustained me. I will not be afraid of th- Ten thousands of people that have set themselves round about me. When he saw the Syrian army, did he think, Psalm 27, though an host, an army, should encamp against me, my heart shall what? Not fear. The war should rise against me. In this I will be confident, and on and on you can go. People say, don't they? You know, faith is a crutch. Faith is something for, you know, it's for the people of the past, before science, before education. It was for, you know, the the generations before now. We don't need religion anymore. It was a crutch for the weak in the past. Well, you try telling Elisha here, 
that faith is a crutch. My dear friend, faith does not give you a crutch. Faith gives you an army. The army of the Lord of hosts, these heavenly chariots of fires, these, these angels that are waiting, all they need is one order, one command from the Lord of hosts, and they will strike. And you can hear the Lord saying, can't you? Do not touch my prophet. Do my prophet no harm. But how does Elisha fight here with this army around him? Well, verse 18 tells us that he prays. He doesn't call them down like Elijah had done, remember, when the army, the, the captains and, and the, 50, the armies of 50 had come to him and he called down fire from heaven. Not Elisha. Elisha is a type of Christ, a prophet of grace. But he prays, smite this people. And we're like, yes, smite them. That's what they deserve. These are the people who've carried away your children captive. These are the people who keep trying to capture your king. Yes, smite them. But smite them, Elisha says, with blindness. So there's, there's something of an irony here. You've got an old prophet who sees everything. You have a poor-sighted seminarian who needs his, his sight improved. And you have an unbelieving army that are hopelessly blind. Verse 18 in the middle, the Lord smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So here is the Lord of hosts delivering his faithful servant. But that makes, that, this all ought to make us ask questions like, do we have faith? What's more real to you this afternoon? The things you see, the, the, the trials you might find yourself in, the work, the family, whatever it is, or the Word of God. Is God a reality to us? Is, are the promises of His Word so real to us? And what a prayer for us to pray, young and old, children here too. This is an easy prayer to remember. Lord, open my eyes. You can pray that for others too, for brothers, for sisters, for sons and daughters, for grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You can pray this for our leaders. Lord, open their eyes. Open their eyes that they would see the reality. Well, let's come here thirdly now to this third point and this end, the end of the story. We have the Lord of hosts displaying His amazing grace to the enemy. It really is a remarkable end to this account. The Syrians, the army, are smitten with blindness. Now, I can't prove this, but it seems to me that the blindness here is not physical. I mean, the, the, this army still walk all the way to the land of, or right into Samaria. It seems that it's more a blindness of perception. The old man that's speaking to them, they don't see that it's Elisha. They don't see that the path he's taking them on is all the way into the headquarters of their enemy where the other army is. But anyhow, Elisha comes to them, comes to them in verse 19 and he says, this is not the way. You know, you're going in the wrong direction. Ne neither is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. 
Now, that's actually perfectly true, isn't it? They were seeking the king of Israel. And he does bring them there. And, and so Elisha says, let me bring him, uh, let me bring you to, to him. So they come into Samaria, that's Israel, and Elisha prays again. Now he says, now Lord, open their eyes that they would see. Now can you imagine how these Syrians felt when suddenly they see? When suddenly they realize where they are? When suddenly they realize the old man who's, who's been leading us this whole time is the very prophet that we were coming to capture, Elisha. And the place he's led us to is, is the enemy headquarters. Can you imagine what they felt when suddenly they hear, they hear the king of Israel ride up in his chariot and say, Master, Master, shall I smite? Shall I smite? These, these Syrians think we're doomed, we're finished. Here's the question. Why not? Again, these are the men who have stolen your children. They've kidnapped them. These are the people who just keep coming and taking your crops and taking your, your land and your, your, your people, your children who are trying to capture your king. Why should we not smite them? So can you imagine how the Syrians would then have felt in verse 22 when they hear Elisha say, Thou shalt not smite them, but set bread and water before them. Feed them. Prepare a meal for them. They're hungry. They're thirsty. Feed them. Prepare the table and let them eat. It's astonishing. And once again, what, are, what is being communicated here, but the God of Israel is not like the God of Syria or the gods of the nations who are idols dumb. But this is the God of whom we say, who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity? This is a God who said in Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-one: if thine enemy is hungry, feed him. Give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Don't you see the stunning picture here of the gospel of grace? The stunning picture of the greater than Elisha, the great prophet of grace, the God of salvation himself. I see a picture of myself here too. Do you see yourself in this picture? Where are you in this picture? I see myself in this picture. The one, the one we hated. The one we warred against. The one that, if we were honest, we would rather did not exist. The one we would have killed if we could. The one we nailed to the cross with our sins. And the law brings us, step by step, in our blindness... The law brings us to the place where we hear the justice of God saying, shall I smite? Shall I smite? And again the question is, why not? Why should the justice of God not smite you and me because of our absolute rebellion and sin against God? But then to hear, 
these words of gospel, thou shalt not smite them. To hear the great prophet of grace say, I have not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To hear of another smiting, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my fellow. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Yes, these are my enemies. Yes, they hated me without a cause, but I have made a great provision for them. I have set bread before them. I have set water of life before them. Make them eat. Make them drink. Don't you see Christ in verse 23? He prepared great provision for them. Great provision. This is the gospel. These enemies have come. They deserve to die. But rather than death, they're offered peace. They're offered mercy. They're offered pardon. Feed them. Feed them with mercy. Feed them with love. Feed them with pardon. Offer them a covenant of friendship. That's what a meal was. It's the same in Eastern cultures today. You go to North Africa, a place like Egypt, for example, and if a Muslim and a Christian eat together, they share a meal together, you cannot betray after this. A meal is a covenant. And that's what, this, that's what this is here. This is a covenant. And you see then what's happened here. Verse 23, when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Do you see what's happened? What has been destroyed? Not the enemy. It's easy to destroy an enemy. It's a lot harder to destroy enmity. It's the enmity that has been destroyed. They came no more into the land of Israel. Matthew Henry says the most glorious victory over an enemy is to turn him into a friend. My dear friends, only the gospel of the grace of God can do that and does do that. Can you imagine now what, this, what these people would have said to the king of Syria when they go back? Where's the prophet Elisha? Did you find him? No. He found us. Did you capture him? No. He captured us. Did he hurt you? Did he try to harm you? No, he, he fed us with a great, great feast. What is this? What is this? This is the gospel. It's the gospel of the grace of God that turns the enemy into a friend. Oh, what a picture of the grace of God. But my dear friend, there, there is warning here as well. Because if we do not have faith in Jesus Christ, then we are at war with God. And this same army exists today. We don't see it physically, but it's not, it's not any less real. And this same army that Elisha saw is coming again, but this time all the holy angels of God. Paul writes about that in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. He says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And listen, that obey not the gospel. 
that obey not the gospel. You try and imagine if these Syrian soldiers said no to the food. I don't want your food. I don't want your bread. I don't want your water. You know, this would be, like, this would be a, a death sentence. But, but, but how much more when the f- bread and the water of life and the, the wine and, and the, the broken body and the poured out wine of the gospel is set before us. Take it, my dear friend, and eat it. Put down your weapons. Accept his terms of peace and eat freely at this glorious gospel table. Well, what a wonderful thing it is to have the Lord of hosts upon our sight. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank Thee so much for Thy amazing grace. We can read this account of this remarkable passage of history, but see in it such a glorious picture of Thy gospel. Thou art the God who is not destroying the enemies, but destroying the enmity that is in our hearts by nature, and not destroying it by beating it down, but destroying it through love, through broken bread, through poured out wine. O Lord, may we look to the Lord Jesus and see how how willingly, how lovingly he has, has come and has provided this great provision for sinners. And so we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst be with us this week. We thank thee for this day. We thank thee for this time together. We Pray, Lord, that thy blessing would be upon this congregation from this time forth and even forevermore. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.